0: These are perilous times in which we live, days of apostasy. And frankly, because of this, we need to have a deliberate and intense commitment to jettison the blindfolds that we tend to wear, especially as Americans, even American evangelicals, blindfolds of our Pollyanna American culture. And as we take off those blindfolds, we would be able to clearly see the escalating deterioration of the world around us, all of which points to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that there will be a deep and pervasive solemnity of mind that you will have this morning and every morning when we come to that time where the word is opened up to you and that you will join me in a solemn consciousness of the presence of God. Having said that, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. As we continue our verse-by-verse examination of this epistle, we find ourselves in verses 8 through 12. And this text will help us understand what it means to live life To the fullest. Before we read the text, join with me in just examining a few things as we prepare our minds to receive the Word this morning. I understand that soldiers that are away from home find that the most prized possession that they can receive. Out of all of the boxes of things that we can send them, the most prized possession, they claim, is a letter of love and encouragement from someone they love and care for. Obviously, the Holy Spirit understood this because he inspired the Apostle Peter to encourage the besieged and persecuted saints that were scattered all over in the first century. And he encourages them with this letter. Remember now, the context here is that Peter has been offering encouragement to these persecuted saints. He has first stirred their spiritual affections by reminding them of the glorious nature and benefits of their salvation. He's called them to holy living. He's called them to understand the importance of feeding on the word. He's then gone to great lengths to help people understand that. Even in the midst of great hostility, they need to be submissive to the government, submissive to their masters, even wives to their husbands and husbands to the Lord. And to do all of this for the Lord's sake, demonstrating our love for him and our absolute confidence in his sovereign control. And now in verses eight through twelve, he underscores his admonitions for submission by giving an immensely practical summary of the marks of a consummate Christian in order that we might be able to live life to the fullest, especially so that these persecuted and suffering saints of the first century, even in the midst of great trauma, would be able to live life to the fullest. Notice what he says in verse 8. To sum up, Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Before we examine this text closely, let's think about life in general for a little bit. And I would encourage you to think about your life in specific as well. I was reading that a certain person traveling through a city continued to call out, Who wants the elixir of life? The daughter of Rabbi Jodah heard him and told her father. And he said, Call the man in. When he came in, the rabbi said, What is the elixir of life? Thou sellest, he answered, Is it not written, What man is he that loveth life and desireth to see good days? Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. This is the elixir of life and is found in the mouth of man. A careful observer of Christians will quickly notice there are two categories of saints. There are those who live life to the fullest and there are those who merely exist. There are those you might say that sing and those that whine. There are those who live life to the fullest and those kind of people see life as an adventure But those who merely exist see it as a chore. Those who really live, love a good challenge, whereas those who merely exist tend to give up in despair. Those who live life to the fullest take time to smell the roses, but those who exist always complain about the thorns. Those who live participate in a wide spectrum of life experiences, whereas Those who merely exist tend to watch others living life, typically on the television set, afraid to try anything new. Those who really live life make great companions, especially if your airplane crashes on a deserted island. But those who exist, well, let's just say that you'll probably wish you hadn't survived. Those who live life to the fullest seem to always have a song in their heart, whereas those that exist, as I say, seem to be whining. And the only time they sing is when things are going well, but then they angrily weep when they don't. Those who really live life to the fullest are content with the simple simple things in life, whereas those that merely exist are always complaining, always wanting more. But most importantly, dear friends, those who live life to the fullest are those who know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and exhibit the virtues that are found in this text. They are harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, humble in spirit. They never return evil for evil, but offer a blessing instead. These are the ones that desire life. They love to see good days. And they guard their tongue, they pursue peace, and they pray. What about you? Don't you know there were some serious whiners among those early saints? And my, they had a lot to whine about, a lot to complain about. But there were also some singers. And certainly Peter was one that sang much. We can see that even in the first chapter. And yet here he knew he was about to be crucified along with his wife. You ask, well, how can anyone have such a positive outlook on life when facing an excruciating death? Well, the answer is found in the first chapter that we studied, found even in his salutation, where Peter begins by exalting the triumphs and the truths of his election and our election, that we are chosen and sanctified and sealed and blessed And as a result of all of that, he breaks forth in that glorious doxology where he expresses the source and the power and the promise and the confidence of his hope and our hope that we have a living hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. It's as if it's as if Peter was saying there is absolutely nothing Anyone can do that can steal my joy or your joy because our joy is not dependent upon the circumstances of life, but it's dependent upon the certain realities of heaven that are inherent in our salvation. And therefore, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So bring on the persecution, bring on the suffering, bring on the disappointment, disappointments. You know, the Apostle Paul was the same way. He was a singer. He was not a whiner. He lived life to the fullest. I think of Acts 16. You remember when Paul and Silas were in the jail cell and at midnight, the text tells us that they were praying and singing hymns of praises to God and the other prisoners were listening and then the earthquake came. This is why the Apostle Paul could add his words of praise, saying, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, he said, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Well, friends, this is the very heart of Peter's epistle. The Spirit of God is speaking through him to help those early saints and to help all of us focus on the amazing blessings and privileges of our salvation. Now, those who know nothing of salvation, who know nothing of Christ, are going to continue to be bored out of their mind as they listen to me this morning. But hopefully the Spirit of God will stir your heart because these things of which I speak are not mere oratory. But they are the expressions of one who truly knows and loves Christ, as I know many, if not most of you do. This was his desire to teach people how to live, even in the midst of adversity, how to really live in a world that hates them. And I believe on the basis of Scripture and certainly on the basis of what I see happening in our country and around the world, that hostilities towards Bible believing Christians. Which, by the way, are very few in this country. But hostility towards truly Bible-believing Christians is going to increase. So we need to know what it is to, or how we should live life to its fullest. And so Peter is teaching us here that the Christian life is a journey. It's a journey to the glories of heaven that requires us to traverse the paths of suffering many times. So, over and over again, Peter instructs us with very practical truths for victorious living, truths that were modeled by our Savior so that we can live life to the fullest, come what may. Now, contrast this type of attitude with those in our society and our Western culture. I was reading about a program that was on PBS. And it was a program on this issue of affluenza, which is a rather interesting term that describes our American culture. In fact, they define it this way. Affluenza is the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. Another way of defining it is is it is an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by dogged The Dogged Pursuit of the American Dream. It's fascinating, as you look at some of the statistics that this and other shows and research groups have discovered. For example, many of today's three-car garages, they say, occupy 900 square feet, which was just about the average size of an entire home in the 1950s. And typically we store things in them that we seldom use, and I'm as guilty as you are. It's interesting, too, that according to research, the percentage of Americans calling themselves, quote, very happy, reached its highest point in 1957, and it's gradually been going down since then. Yet, today we consume twice as much as those people did in the 1950s. Since 1950, Americans have, alone, have used more resources than everyone who has ever lived before us. Each American individual uses up to 20 tons of basic raw materials annually. It's estimated that Americans throw away 7 million cars a year, 2 million plastic bottles an hour, and enough aluminum cans annually to make 6,000 DC 10 airplanes. Yet, despite all of our wealth and all of our consumption, medical research indicates an alarming and steady increase of depression in our country. The Journal of the American Medical Association published an article on the issue of depression. And to summarize their reports, they are basically saying that more Americans report being depressed every year. And it's interesting that the greatest age group is in the younger Americans, the ages ages 18 to 29. And they indicate that many more Americans are being treated and medicated for depression. Indeed, as you look at the research, prescription drug sales especially antidepressants, continues to lead the way of all other drugs. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Ronald Kessler of the Harvard Medical School indicates that although many more Americans are being treated, more, more and more people are needing treatment and those that are entering treatment, he says, are needing more treatment and more medication in their treatment facilities. And it's interesting, as I read through much research the last several weeks, that the researchers admit that there is a nagging question here that requires an explanation. And what they're saying is that, quote, maybe the sources of depression are not under medical control, and by medicating growing numbers of Americans, we are masking the sources of their misery, end quote. Now, of course, Christians are not immune from the plague of chronic unhappiness. And why is that? Well, mainly because we've become too much like the world. We spend much of our lives watching television, allowing the corruption of Hollywood to shape our worldview. In fact, I was reading the other day that the average American will spend one year of his lifetime, on average, watching just television commercials. Makes me resent even more those commercials when they come along. And little by little what happens is the world squeezes us into its mold and we become conformed to the world rather than separated from it. And sadly we become participants in the moral freefall of our country. A country which now can boast that 40% of the children born in the United States are born out of wedlock. We are not immune to the greedy materialism that causes us to want to consume more and more. I'm sure you saw the pitiful display of greed on the news reports of Black Friday when they opened up the gates and you saw the people pouring through the doors to try to find that precious toy or gadget or whatever. It's interesting, too, that Americans carry $1 trillion in personal debt, not including real estate and mortgages. Research indicates that approximately $4,000 for every man, woman, and child, that's the type of debt that we have on average. I also read that every year more Americans declare bankruptcy than graduate from college. What I'm trying to do, dear friends, is paint a picture for you. That life, living life to the fullest, is not found in the American dream. No wonder so many people in our affluent culture are so depressed. They're worshiping the wrong God. They're worshiping themselves. Jesus said, I want you to deny yourself and follow me. But our culture says, no, you need to indulge yourself. And look out for number one. By the way, this is the fundamental perversion of the divine order that we see in apostate evangelicalism. Rather than preaching a gospel of self denial, many preach a gospel of self fulfillment, a gospel of self indulgence in order to be popular. And so, therefore, in essence, their message is come to Jesus and you can be prosperous you can be successful, you can be influential, you can even be healthy. And so they reduce the glorious God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to nothing more than some kind of a spiritual Santa Claus. And all you have to do is give Him your list and He'll deliver May I remind you, by the way, that this is, again, not the gospel of Christ. The Lord Jesus said in Luke 9:23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Now, after that lengthy introduction, we come back to Peter's words here, where he gives Christians a summary of virtues that will help us live life to the fullest, come what may, as well as a summary of the blessings that we will experience. And I've divided this into three very simple sections. We're going to see the ambition, the virtues, and the blessing. First of all, the ambition, we see it in verse 10. It's kind of the theme here, the central phrase of verses 8 through 12. Let him who means to love life and see good days. There's our ambition. By the way, here he is quoting. Psalm 34, verses 12 through 14, where the psalmist describes some of the most obvious character qualities of God's people. And friends, this text affirms the appropriateness of loving life on earth and having a desire to live as long as God intends for us to live. There's nothing wrong with that. You see, life is a blessing from God. And in it, we experience the glory of God. We marvel at the wonders of the universe that He has created for us to enjoy. When we look at life, we understand that life is our time to prepare for eternity, to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is an opportunity to taste of the Lord and to see that He is good. Life is a time to love and to laugh and to weep and to rejoice to question and to learn, to bow down and to worship. In fact, the Spirit of God speaks to the Apostle Paul in First Timothy 6.17 and says that he supplies us with all things to enjoy. Solomon knew well of this glorious reality of life. In Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 18, here's what he said. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And of course, as 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this is the sentiment that is seen here in Peter's words, especially in the word that he uses for life. zoing in the original language. A term that expresses the joy of all that life has to offer. A term that denotes the richness of being alive and living for the glory of God. As I was meditating on this text, I spent some time just thinking of all the experiences that God has given me and all of us to enjoy we can get up every morning and we can see the beauty of His creation. We can enjoy the mystery of a newborn baby that we hold in our hands. We can enjoy the blessings of marriage and of family, the inspiration of music, the wonder of literature, the awe of discovery, and the joy of creativity. I'm sure we could all Add to those lists. I know for me, I thoroughly enjoy the sight of a campfire and the smell of cowboy coffee early in the morning on that fire. I love the feel of a horse responding to my cues. I love the sound of the bugle of an elk in the mountains on a frosty morning. Ah, but more importantly, I love the touch of my wife. I love the look of her eyes and the sound of her voice. I love to be able to hold grandchildren in my arms and I love to see my children come to a saving knowledge of Christ and on and on it goes. So naturally, in verse 10, we should love life. By the way, the term love here denotes the strongest, most intense, passionate, emotional desire for the object of our love and also. We love life and we want to see good days. These are God-honoring days that we want to see. These are prosperous days. These are days filled with joy, happy days. Days filled with doing things that bring joy to us and glory to God. Now, what is the key? What is the elixir of life, if you will? We move from the ambition to the virtues, and Peter gives us a summary of them here, beginning in verse 8. He says, to sum up, let all be harmonious. Oh, dear, it's going to leave some of us out. Those that can't seem to get along with anyone. Those who are controlling. Those who are opinionated, self-willed, negative, proud, And just downright cantankerous folks, if that describes you, you're not living life to the fullest, nor are those who have to endure you. We are to be harmonious Homophrones in the original language. It literally means like minded. It's an inward commitment to be compatible with others and all that that entails. We know what a harmony is. And a harmony means that there are certain notes in a chord that fit together that sound beautiful to the ear. If you get the wrong note in there, just one wrong note in that chord, there's going to be dissonance. We are to be harmonious. We're all members of the same body, 1 Corinthians 12. And harmony among the brethren is especially important during times of hostility. In fact, in... Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27, the Apostle Paul reminds us to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He goes on to say, Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. Friends, I would submit to you that a harmonious Christian will do all that he or she possibly can to avoid schism in a family and certainly in a church family. This would be the opposite of those who are dissonant, who are divisive. You'll see this many times in church hoppers. They're always complaining, stirring up trouble. They will have few friends. Typically, their families will be in turmoil. These type of folks are not living life to the fullest. Not only are we to be harmonious, but he says sympathetic. This refers to a readiness to enter into someone's feelings, whether it be sorrow or joy. We read of this in Romans twelve fifteen. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Happy Christians, my friends, will be sympathetic, caring Christians. Whereas unhappy Christians will be indifferent and selfish when it comes to the needs of others. Which category describes you? Harmonious, sympathetic. He also adds brotherly. It means to have affection or love for other Christians. A love that would be manifested by selfless acts of kindness. And there are so many examples of this in Scripture. I'll give you one in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. We're told to encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Friends, never underestimate the power of an encouraging word. Verse 14 of that text, we are told to Admonish the unruly. In fact, he says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with all men. You see, folks, we are to get involved in the lives of other Christians. We're part of a family. There is a kindred spirit. We are those of like precious faith. Therefore, we are to be brotherly. And when we do, the Lord will reward us by helping us to live life to the fullest. We are also to be kind-hearted. By the way, this term in the original language is often translated bowels or intestines. It's an interesting word because the root of this term refers to one's internal organs, or as I would like to say, our guts. That's the way we think of it. And this really denotes the emotional, visceral, gut-wrenching passion that would motivate us to meet the needs of others. You know, that gut feeling where you just have pity on someone, where you have compassion on them. In fact, this is the same type of compassion, the gut-wrenching compassion that the Lord Jesus had when He wept over those who rejected Him in Jerusalem. You know, I have never seen a sad, sour, depressed, Christian who willingly and joyfully visits hospitals and nursing homes and is involved in the lives of those who are in need I've never seen that I've never seen that kind of Christian when they are involved in the family of God you know it's fascinating as you think about it weeping Christians are happy Christians The Bible is full of paradoxes is it not If you want to gain your life, you've got to be willing to lose it. Weeping Christians are happy Christians when we weep for the things that God weeps for. Now, why is that? Simply because such compassion is a certain indication that that individual is indwelt and controlled by the Spirit of God, who is the very source of love, joy, peace, patience, patience. Goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians five, the fruits of the spirit. We are also to be humble in spirit. Peter says. Literally, it can be translated: "We're to be humble-minded." Of course, humility is the quintessential virtue of the Christian, for we more than all others are acutely aware of our sinfulness and the undeserved mercy and grace that God has lavished upon us in our salvation. All coming from our Heavenly Father, as Peter reminded all of us in chapter 1. Practically speaking, the Apostle Paul spoke about this humble-mindedness in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, humility will always be the dominating motive of the Christian who lives life to the fullest. For that kind of Christian knows in his heart or in her heart, that our citizenship is in heaven. That Christian knows that his ultimate joy is not in this life, but in the next. And so he lives in light of eternity. He knows that the eyes of the Lord are upon him, as this text says, and that his ears attends to his prayers. He knows that if God is for him, who can be against him? And so because of these virtues, even Towards a hostile world that hates him, he will, in verse 9, not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Which, by the way, is the idea of returning some type of cursing or evil rant or railing against someone. But instead, give a blessing, it says. You see, this is the power of the Christian worldview. And this is the very opposite of the go-ahead-and-make-my-day Mentality of our me-first dominated culture in which we live. I'm sure you would have to agree with me that you grow weary of the never-ending complaints of people who feel as though their personal rights have been violated. I get so sick of this. Well, somebody used a certain word and called me a bad name, and so I'm going to sue you. Or, you belittled my sexual orientation, so I'm going to take you to court. Or, you discriminated against me because of my religion. Or, you drew a cartoon about my God and my religion, and so now we're going to bomb and kill a bunch of your people. I mean, it goes on and on and on. We have an obsession in our culture with being politically correct, which, by the way, I believe is nothing more than a euphemism for being tolerant of the things that God finds abhorrent. It seems as though everyone is hypervigilant towards being offended. Wearing their emotions on their shirt sleeve. And boy, when somebody offends you, what do you do? Well, you give them down the road. You, boy, we're great at comebacks, aren't we? I know I am, and I have to swallow most of them. We struggle with this. It's part of our flesh. And if it gets bad enough, we'll sue them. That's what we'll do. But this should never be the mindset of a Christian, especially if you love life and you want to see good days. Folks, we've got to learn when we're mistreated, and we will be, and it's going to get worse, you need to learn to blow it off. You need to learn to get over it. Welcome to a fallen world. You know? Pray for these people. When we're the targets of evil treatment by the world, we are to turn the other cheek, Jesus said in Matthew 5. Let me remind you of that text. He said, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So again, Peter reminds us, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. Rather, he says in verse nine, give a blessing. In other words, continue to choose to love these people to seek their highest good. And to pray for their salvation. Or if they're a believer, pray that God will be merciful to them and bring conviction to their heart and cause them to repent. And with that, have a desire for reconciliation and a heart of forgiveness. Verse 9, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You see, because of the forgiveness that we have received in Christ... And because of the glorious hope of our heavenly inheritance, we should abound in the virtue of forgiveness. That should be the defining characteristic of our life. Because we know that we deserve eternal wrath and yet we have been made partakers of the divine nature. We have been enjoined to the divine inheritance. And so therefore, where is the justification for vengeance and retaliation against those who abuse us? And we must also remember that that God has said that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And folks, never forget that whenever we suffer insults for the sake of Christ, the offense against him is far greater than against you. He who is most holy is most offended. So in verse 10, he says, let him who means to love life and see good days, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. In other words, guard your tongue from retaliation, from slander, from obscenity. We must remember what the Spirit of God has said in Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. And in James 3 and verse 6, we are reminded that the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And is set on fire by hell. Friends, we must all learn to refrain our tongue from evil. And notice in verse 11, he says, and let him turn away from evil and do good. And certainly in this context, it means to utterly reject the sinful proclivity that you would normally have to curse those who are persecuting you. Boy, that is tough. Think how easy it is for us to lash out at anyone who offends us. Again, that's the American way, isn't it? The the slightest provocation. Becomes the trigger for instant retaliation. And instead, we're told to turn away from evil and do good. My friends, once again, this is the elixir of life. If you want to live life to the fullest, learn to seek peace and pursue it, as we read in verse 11. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, let me digress for just a moment. Peace here is not peace on earth, not this corny kumbaya stuff that you hear typically. That, that is not going to happen. Things are not going to get better. Things are going to get worse. And you say, boy, that's a pessimistic view. No, that is a biblical view. And I say that with great hope and great joy because I know that these things must come to pass. Peace is not going to come upon the earth until the Prince of Peace comes and brings peace until He comes and He judges the world and He rules with a rod of iron. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Oh my, that shattered a whole lot of sermons for a whole lot of preachers. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And I know that many of you, because of your faith in Christ, experience persecution in your own family. I know. I've worked with many of you and I continue to pray for you. I've experienced that as well. But the peace that Peter is asking us to pursue here is one derived from the very term that he uses in the original language, a term that is used to define an inner tranquility, a spiritual serenity, if you will, an abiding joy. That's what we want to pursue as we learn to live life to its fullest. In fact, we read of this type of peace in Colossians 315, where we're told, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans eight and verse six, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And in Philippians four, seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. So in verse 11, we are to seek peace and pursue it. The grammar in the original language is fascinating here. You hunters will appreciate it. This term and the way it is constructed is used in other places to describe a hunter that is aggressively and relentlessly trailing his prey. That's what we're to do in seeking peace and pursuing it. So when our lives are harmonious and we're living that way with other people, when we are sympathetic, when we're brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. When we are guarding our tongue from evil, we will find that internal, unshakable peace. So Peter reminds us of the ambition and the virtues and finally the blessing. Notice in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears Attend to their prayer. Oh, child of God, do not think for one minute that God does not observe everything you do. Not just your outward behaviors, but your inner thoughts. Because indeed, He is omniscient. He knows all things and He is omnipotent. He is everywhere at the same time. David acknowledged this in Psalm 139 when he said, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. The idea there that there is nothing hidden. Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thoughts from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. My friends, how we should rejoice in our Lord's watch care over us. He never sleeps, He never slumbers. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Indeed, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears attend to our prayer. And for those who live consistently with these Christ-like virtues, we can be assured that He will hear our prayers. And by implication, those who violate these admonitions will forfeit divine blessing. And as a result, those kind of people even though they might be a believer, will not be able to live life to the fullest. How sad it is to see people that name the name of Christ and yet you know by their attitudes, by their character, by their conduct that they have forfeited divine blessing in their life and they're living under divine chastening and many times too angry and too bitter to even acknowledge it. Indeed, According to the end of verse 12, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And, folks, such a thought should cause us all to tremble for those who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, those who mock His word. For the wrath of God abides upon them, and unless they repent, the horrors of an eternal hell awaits them. Oh, dear Christian, do you want to live life to the fullest? And get serious about these life giving, God honoring virtues and watch what God will do in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these very practical admonitions. We thank you that you love us enough to give us the secrets to living life to the fullest for our joy and for your glory. Lord, by the power of Your Spirit, may we live these things out. And again, I pray that You will bring conviction to anyone who knows nothing of the life of which we speak. May today be the day that they confess their sins and they ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior and submit to Him as the Lord of their life. Lord, may today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. For I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree